We Are Everything Hurts. This is our first ever live episode, um, 168 episodes that we've recorded all online. And this is the first time that we've d- we're doing a live episode, so this is very exciting. And it's been seven years. It's been 10 years since we've actually seen each other in person until yesterday. Yeah. And seven years of podcast episodes. And we are here. I'd like to say you look exactly the same, but you've aged horribly. I know. That's what kids does. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. But this isn't about us. We also have a very special guest, Sandra Matz. Thanks for, thanks for joining us for this uh, very special episode. Happy to be here. It sounded like you were going to hit it off. So it's nice <laughs> that you're including me. Of course. In the of, of course. <laughs> so y- your research uh, aims to understand how psychological characteristics influence real life outcomes. How did you get to the point? What's your origin story for how you're doing your research right now? How far do you want me to go back? As like, far as you when like. When I was born. I was, <laughs> no, no but before, it, before that. Yeah, yeah before that. No. When my parents, you know, that would be Maybe not that. Okay, <laughs> um, no, it, I think it actually, so there's like a lot of movements in my career trajectory. I think I started off when I, when I decided to study psychology, I wanted to do leadership development and coaching. So nothing to do with what I, what I currently do. And it really all started when I joined um, a lab in Cambridge. So I did an exchange year, which also only happened, I was telling someone yesterday that um, I missed a deadline for the TOEFL test, which is the English language test. And Cambridge apparently was the only one, the only <laughs> university that didn't require one. So I ended up there. So you're just was, forced to go to it Cambridge. Just yeah. forced to go to Cambridge. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so that, that's how I ended up there. And then I met this amazing group of um Research is that we're just trying to start out in terms of linking online behavior to psychological dimensions. Um, and I thought that was fascinating if you think about it from a psychology point of view, right? Because it's in a way it's meant to be a behavioral science, but it's really difficult to study real behavior, mm. right? Like if you take it seriously and you want to try and get a sense of what is it that people do out there day to day, that was hard. Like there's like this one um, book that I really like published, I think in 1949, where two psychologists, Baca and Wright, they set out to study um, the lived experience of children. They had eight research assistants, followed as one boy in rural Kansas, Raymond Birch, over the course of 24 hours, and just kind of write down everything that they, they did from the moment that you woke up, like all of the conversations, the piano lessons, homework. Um, and they turned it into a book of 435 pages or something. And they're like, well, that's, the, that's how children interact in real life situations. And it was like, that's it's an amazing book, right? It's like a real masterpiece for back in the day, mm. but it's also like one kid. So if you think about really studying behavior at scale and at the level of granularity that I think we want to see as as psychologists, I think that really shifted when we had the opportunity to study it from a more computational lens. But mm. also, I mean, if you're one of those people who has never trusted a survey ever, yeah. it must be tremendously satisfying. Look, I'll give you an example. Dan, which of your kids do you like better? <laughs> I love them both equally. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they're, watch, they're watching right now. I'm forcing you to pick one. No, I'm not, I'm not picking a child. What are their names? Noah. No. There is a heart to every question like this where the, tr- the pieces that we leave behind in digital life are really interesting in a way that a conscious answer to a question isn't. I mean, on both sides, because to some extent, I think behavioral traces allow you to get a high level sense of what someone's life looks like, but it also doesn't give you anything about their experience, right? So we might have like similar trajectories. You might go to work at 9 a.m. I might go to work at 9 a.m. None of us probably goes to work at 9 a.m., but never mind. And you might enjoy it tremendously, and I hate it, 
right? So I think that it's the combination of can we observe someone's behavior and then can we potentially complement it with people's subjective experience that in a way would be like the gold standard, holy grail of psychology. There's a lot of um, rich data available from smartphone data, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, activity, location data, um, heaps of stuff. So it's a, it's a gold mine, but at the same time, there's a lot of privacy concerns. How do we weigh this up? These two, these two competing things. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, what's I your mean, perspective yeah. on this? I mean, I think it's it's like such an interesting um, time to be a psychologist because of these questions, right? Mm. If you think about it, it's like smartphones is like someone lurking over your shoulder twenty four seven. They know exactly where you go, who you meet, what you do, um, and in a way, like if you go back to psychology, super interesting. But it's also very invasive, um, and I've been recently thinking. I mean, not recently for the last 10 years now. So that's where the 40 and the 40 comes in. Um, I th- I've been thinking a lot about like, what does it mean, right? So it's like one thing that we can understand someone's behavior, we can understand their preferences, we can understand maybe their psychological traits, but also what, what is the power that this does give us? And that's kind of coming back to the real world, I think, implications. Um, and I've started to compare it to essentially my experience of growing up in a village. So I grew up in like a tiny place, 500 people. Um, and in a way, it's like the same thing, right? So your neighbors observe your behavior and they make inferences about who you are and what you want. And on the one hand, that's amazing because you feel like there's a sense of belonging and people know you, best recommendations ever. But it's also very fucking annoying because they know everything about yeah. you and they manipulate you into doing things that you don't want to do. And True. smartphone sensing is like the same thing, right? Mm. So there's like someone looking over your shoulder, amazing at potentially predicting when you might enter depressive episode, like before anyone else can do that. But it also is pretty creepy if you have someone know exactly where you live, where you work, what you do. If there is like less physical activity again, I, maybe some people it would be great if they knew that I was not doing well with my men- physical and mental health, but then there's other people that I don't want to know. Thinking about this, Predicting predicting depression. Um, that's one approach which people are using for smartphone data. A couple of years ago, you published a non-significant study which was looking at how we can generalize this this sort of data. What sort of challenges has you, have you found within your own work of publishing non-significant work? Is this something which has been difficult in, in your experience submitting work? Has it, has it been harder for you? What's your experience there? It's a great question. It actually wasn't even non-significant. So this one, it's like a study that we did on predicting depressive, depressive symptoms from smartphone sensing data. So in this case, um, GPS records, so how much physical activity is there? Do people leave their house as much um, as they used to? Um, do they go to different places? And I think there had been quite a lot of studies, mostly on undergrad students in like a very confined space, right? That had shown that you can do that with like relatively high levels of accuracy, which sounds great. And now you have all of these startups popping up left and right who try to turn those, those predictions into products. And the question was like, well, if you take it outside of a university campus and undergraduate student samples, does it still work the same way? And answer is no. Um, so it's not that you don't have any predictive accuracy. So there's still something, right? You're still picking up on some signal. But I think it was a cautionary note on trying to take science that is done in these weird samples that are not necessarily representative, both in terms of like the population that we're observing, but also in terms of the behavioral data that they're generating, right? Like life on campus looks pretty different than life in a mm. like in New York. Um, but yeah, it's, it's highly structured from day to day. It's highly yeah, structured mm-hmm. in exactly the same way from week to week. You have periods that are sort of infinitely predictable. Yeah. Um, 
So you're, you're going to pick a, let's just say, for instance, so we've got the MEMS in a smartphone and we're running it. If you missed class, we'd know because you didn't walk there, yeah. right? All of that structure in the rest of the world feels just totally insurmountable. Yeah. There's just so much heterogeneity, right? Uh-huh. If you think about, and some of it is based on like who we are, but also be, uh, based on external constraints, right? And you don't necessarily have that in a university town because everybody has to go to classes. Everybody goes to the same shops because it's relatively small. Yep. Like if same I have to go to work, yeah. Them, making them feel weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I got a question for you. Um, when we knew, uh, when Andre said, we should, we should do this. And I looked at all your work. I really, I knew what the first question I was going to ask was. Have you read Everyone Lies? Have I read? Everyone Lies, the book. Oh, Everybody Lies. Everybody Lies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so right, I think that answers that question. <laughs> I think I have, yeah. Seth, he's actually a friend of mine, yes. Right. I, have, yes. <laughs> I really wanted to get your perspective on the, like, the method, the project of being able to do that. Okay. I'm happy to. So for everybody who's not read Everybody Lies, um, <laughs> it's, he's, <laughs> he used to work for Google. Um, and he was actually one of the first people who I think popularized this notion of you can take digital footprints, um, in this case, Google searches, to learn something about the collective psychology of people. So I think what distinguishes my work a little bit from his is that I'm very much focused on individuals, individual differences. And he's looking at, well, to what extent can we learn about people's sexual preferences that they don't disclose in surveys by looking at Google searches? To what extent can we see how racism in the US still exists in a way that we can't get from surveys? And I think he did it in a, in a very smart way. I think it's like his focus is much more on trying to understand societal dynamics um, mm. than some of the stuff that I do. But I think he was really one of the first people to both show the value of the data that we generate, but also kind of initiate this conversation of like, well, what are potentially ethical concerns around that? Yeah. Maybe that, that always felt like the interesting part. Uh, that's probably six years old, seven years old. Give or take, yeah. it's certainly pre-plague. Right? It's it's, it's a while ago. It's it's, it's, it's a while ago. Yeah. I often wondered after this came out, how much is this approach going to change behavioral science in general? Because it's so powerful. Like all the Google searches from Utah is a yeah. tremendous <clears throat> vehicle for figuring out what people think, and you get to match it up with basic demographic facts. Such an interesting playground. I mean, it's it's fraught. There's a lot of concerns with it. There's probably things that people would even on aggregate prefer that you didn't know, mm-hmm. but so powerful. I mean, it's super powerful because you can relate it to any outcome that you have, right? Because it is on this level of geographic units. First of all, in a way, it's more privacy preserving because we're not talking about individuals, right? It's not the smartphone lurking over our shoulder. It's just like what happens in this geographic region. And then also that means you can map it against anything that you can find on the level of counties or states, depending on whether you have access to the internal Google data or not. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It was, uh, he worked for them and he had access to like the individual pieces of the trend. You couldn't, you couldn't recreate any of it from Google Trends. Smaller units, I think. So essentially you can still recreate some of it. Um, It's just that you could do it a little bit more fine grained. Oh, if anyone wants to give me that data, uh, I will come back and try and get the tenures because that's, that's really exciting. I'm sorry. I knew I was going to interrupt no, with good. that at some point yeah. because I. We were talking about that book before. 
I it's know, super it's interesting. Just, I was the, the, moment, yeah. the moment I saw it, I was fascinated with it. Yeah. It was the approach. Yeah. Also because it's dark. Mm. What people actually think is yeah. pretty gnarly. Yeah. But that's the interesting part, right? I think you tell Google stuff that you don't tell your closest friends mm. or like partner even. So those are the burning questions that you have that are oftentimes so intimate you don't want to share with anyone. Yeah. And yet you share it with Google, yeah. <laughs> who you don't necessarily have a ton of trust in. But that's also the only data source that you that you have in terms of getting anonymous feedback. Yeah. I must admit, every couple of months, just for no reason, after I read that book, I have just Googled weird shit to see if there's someone Only out after there the month, after you read it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, before that, it was all very straightforward, you know? Yeah. Like, how to how to hire a car. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why does this bottle say spailing was the last thing that I Googled? Uh, which is a very Frankfurt question. I'm trying to fit in. Not very well, obviously, but I'm having a go. Um, that stuff is delicious, by the way. Uh, in the I bottle. don't even know yeah. what you're talking about. Oh, so the, the ap apple vine is from here. I always oh. liked it. I never knew much about it. I was trying to learn more. I bought a bottle. I said I'd share it with Dan, and then I drank it. Went by doing. <laughs> yeah. But also now I know what spailing means. Yeah. See? Power of Google. Power of Google. I want to ask you a question. Um, a really interesting paper came out a couple of days ago, which talked about the challenges and the time taken to implement open and reproducible science. A lot of your work is open and reproducible, um, pre-registration, experiments, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and for, for a very long time, we've had this idea that it's just as researchers, we just have to do it. We have to learn how to do these things without actually considering the, the time that it takes to do this. And I've sort of changed my mind about this recently in terms of thinking that, yeah, it is quite a big burden on what we're doing. Is this something that you've experienced? Um, so I'll have to think about this a little bit because I remember like one of the benefits of open science just in terms of publishing code for me was actually time saving when the revisions come around mm. and it's like such oh, a yeah. simple thing, oh, yeah. but like we used to, you kind of used to submit your paper, store your final, final version 6.7 somewhere. And then the revisions come back six months after and you're like, no idea. What did I what do? I did. Which was the last <laughs> one? That is actually, I think a time saver just mm. so that. I mean, maybe organized people did that anyway. I didn't. So that was one of the benefits. For me, actually, it's oftentimes difficult to follow the open science principles just because the data that I work with is very sensitive. So it either comes from companies, it's behavioral data that even if you take away all of the names, like all of the, the typically personally identifiable um, information, you can easily reverse engineer. So there's all of these papers showing that you need only three data points to reverse kind of people's identities from credit card spending, which is data sources that I use quite often or from GPS records. So I think oftentimes just the data sources that I work with are actually very hard to um, to make publicly available. And sometimes there's like even clashes with journals, right? It's like- So you get well, pushback. Yeah, because I, yeah. well, oftentimes journals are like, well, you need to make the data available. And I'm like, I can't mm. make the data available. I'm happy to make pre-processed data available mm. and share all of my code. And if someone wants to reach out, they can essentially process it on my service where I can be sure that it's protected, but I'm not going to put it on OSF where everybody can access it because I think that would be violating like people's rights who shared the data with me in the first place. So that I think is a tension that you sometimes have, which like on the one hand, you want to comply with the open science frameworks, but on the other hand, it's also difficult if you think about privacy. So just in, mm. in addition to the time element. Yeah, well, there has to be gradations with that. Um, I have got into dust-ups previously with people who've written 
medical articles where I want to see the data. And they say exactly the same thing that you just said. Of course, you can't see the data. It's horribly personally identifiable. Well, what about just the data from figure four? There's just a list of numbers from 70 to 100 versus all the other things from 70 to 100. Don't, just don't make me scrape it, please. I just, I can't be bothered. Can you just send it to me? And like, oh, no, absolutely not. Because it's protected. It is, at the same time, it's difficult. It's also an umbrella that people hide behind. I mean, I mean, in that particular case, it was because I was pretty sure that- uh, They the just da- didn't like you. Oh, no, 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 people don't go around liking me and they certainly don't like data requests. It yeah. was the fact that they, I think they dodged the figure up and then they raised yeah. $25 million on the, the back of what they're actually doing as a company going into a series A. They're trying to get a result out. I thought the result was dodgy. I didn't say any of this. Um, if you go out and look for people about- Two and a half years ago, give or take, who raised $25 million A round. I know who you are. It's probably yeah, thousands. Yeah, that's, that's thousands <laughs> of companies. Yeah. So that, that could be anyone. Yeah. Um, it's, but there's, there's, obviously, that's legitimate in that context. And there's plenty of other medical contexts where it's also legitimate. And we had um, Chris Jackson on yes. uh, some months back. He said, and they said, well, how do, you, how do you do open data? You're a geologist. He goes, we can't do it at all because all the data belongs to Shell. We and thought that BP was weird. And ESSO. Yeah. And like, no, no, yeah, no. Look, I'm, I'm lucky I'm allowed to have it. I certainly can't share anything. I can't share anything intermediate mm-hmm. because either I get it and I follow the rules or I don't get it at all. And there's like certain in-betweens where you can essentially have agreements with companies that say, well, if anyone really wants to replicate, they can request it from the from the company. Yeah. So I think there's like this semi-open science model that I think is actually a great idea. It's just that we can't necessarily put it online. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's a difference between it being open in some respects and it being freely accessible. Yeah. Um, and some of those things are reflected in the licenses that you have to use to give those things away. I mean, sometimes it's just a practical thing. If you wanted a huge bag of untargeted metabolomics data, someone would have to mail you a hard drive, you know? So it's, 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 the internet isn't any good. You could be downloading that for a couple of weeks. A lot of the time, it'd be easier to mail it to you. Uh, it, it depends. It always depends. We used to be yeah. so much more unreasonable about this, and now look at yeah. us be here being reasonable. No, but wh- I hope wait. you all appreciate our journey. <laughs> That's not to you. You all look great, but some of our listeners are On the internet. It's um yeah, but it's something that we've I've sort of learned just speaking with people people from different fields of how these needs change. And a lot of people who are like they're working with like psychophysics data, like visual data, of course there's almost no privacy implications. It's reaction time stuff. You can share stuff, but then these same people are going, Well, everyone should be sharing without actually figuring out the uh, the implications. Yeah. Well, classic psycho- classic psychophysics papers, a lot of the time, there's six authors, six people in the study the, of the, the authors, yeah, exactly. and they just put their names on the yeah. data point. Yeah. So that's fine. It's totally fine. But, you know, how fast is your saccade has almost no ability to affect your life outside the, yeah. the confines of the study is completely different to this context. Yeah. There's heaps of considerations. I think that one of the latest things I've, I've heard of is this idea of born open data where as soon as your participants are putting in data, it gets sent straight automatically. And look, in in some contexts, yeah, I can see that, but that's definitely not doable. It's also weird because like in a way, technically participants have the right to revoke access to the data, right? So if that gets sent straight to the, it's really interesting because you haven't even finished the experiment. So you have no idea what was being tested if it gets sent straight to a server. So even your right as a participant in that case, I think could be violated to, to some extent. Yeah. 
Well, I support I support like just making code publicly available, right? I think that's I think there's a big distinction between code and data. Um, and code, I, I don't see any reason for for not doing it. I think mm -hmm. it helps you organize stuff. It also helps other people check it, right? Because I don't know how many papers there are, and I wouldn't be surprised if like my one of my papers has a bug somewhere, right? If you after a certain number of like lines of code, there's gonna be a mistake somewhere, and you try to double check it. Students try to double check in, but I think just having that out there for other people to also take a look is extremely valuable. Mm. Yeah, it's much more in the tradition of software than the tradition of behavioral science at that point, 100%. Some journals have a criteria for evaluating new papers for the difficulty. How hard was it to actually get the data? Do you, do you think this is fair? I don't know which journals are those. I didn't even there's know. A, there, there, there's, there's a few out there, and these are sort of half public sort of okay. criteria where they kind of say, well, um, somebody that scraped data from a, a public data set, that isn't necessarily as valuable yeah. as someone who used a seven Tesla MRI and did all some fancy stuff. I mean, I, I think that so much depends, right? I would never use that as a criteria because I think in a way it's just like the study that you can get from web scraped data could be just as impactful or more impactful. So it doesn't strike me as a, as a fair criteria necessarily for evaluating a, a study. Um, it very much depends on how difficult it is. Um, so I think oftentimes by the, at the time that you get the data from companies, it's super easy, right? Because they just give you access and that's it. Mm. However, you've probably tried to set stuff up with 10 companies before you get one. Mm. So I think even in the case of the paper, right? So the, the publishers wouldn't see the fact that you've had to invest so much time trying to build relationships with companies, most of which never work out. Mm. So it would be very hard to see what's happening behind the scenes in a way that you cannot do. I mean, it's easy to know that running 200 subjects in an fMRI it's hard work. I'm doing like an EEG study right now. I don't think I'm ever going to do it again. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> diets, <laughs> two people at the same time. So they have to work out at the same time. Tough, yeah. man. So, but yeah, I think that's, it's just so much more invisible if you work with big data or data from companies. What would be an example? So I wanted to ask about these data sets at some point in time. What would be some good examples just so people have context? From companies? Yeah. Um, so some of it is GPS records. So there's a company that I've been working with, um, which essentially collects GPS records through applications. So they work with like your bank, right? Collects GPS records when you say, yeah, collect my location and you don't even think about it. As in GPS for transactions? Not even just, transactions. Or when you're using so their app? Is, yeah, when you use the app, you know, okay. it's internal location services and you're like, fine, which you should never do because they don't need it. Um, so that is one thing and they work with those companies and they offer insights in return, but they also, in this case, just gave us anonymized data, which was already mapped against locations and events. So instead of giving us the raw data, right, which is like really intimate, they just turn it into, I know that you went to a Starbucks at a certain time, or if there's a, an event here, they kind of know that today, at this time, there was this conference. So they can also, instead of just giving you locations, can give you events. So that is one of the data sets that I used to um, study the extent to which personality is related to people creating their own echo chambers. So I was just interested in like this, no because we always talk about echo chambers in the context of Facebook and it's like these filter mm. bubbles and this recommendation system that keep you in your own ecosystem. And I was just interested in like to what extent 
is it also a function of individual differences, right? So some people just have like a psychologically more diverse set of interests. Um, and if that's true, so if you're, in this case, it was openness. Um, so if you're open-minded, you're more likely to go to places that are both extroverted and introverted or more conscientious and long conscientiousness. And you can imagine that if you have these interests dispositionally, that it's much harder for algorithms to latch onto this, right? Because they can't easily put you in a box. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I teamed up with a with a company, because I just wanted to get real-life data to see not just what people like online, so we started with likes, but also get a sense of like what is it that they do in the real world when it comes to the things that they like the locations that they visit and the events that they attend. Okay, so is is that a data broker in the traditional digital advertising sense? Not a really, because they like te- they technically don't. Um, so they don't give data um, other than to researchers. So what they right. do is like if you're a bank, you send your customers data and they give you insights back on an aggregate level. It's just that they had specific um, like a specific deal with me as a researcher. Got it. Do you think that will happen? I mean, the really fine-grained data that's available that is especially in the US, so what is actually available through a brokerage is kind of scary. I, I think, so for me, data brokers are the evilest of evil because they don't give you any benefits, right? So data brokers, no, they, they really just kind of they're 100% parasitic. And it's a huge industry. I just yeah. recently looked it up, and I think it's essentially as big as all of the American airlines wow. combined. And like the GDP of Bangladesh or something. <laughs> so it's huge. And they make a lot of money just by selling your data, right? And there's no, no way if you think about control, even if you have control somewhere, as long as someone else also has it to sell it on, it's not really control because then you don't really own it. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's, there will be a point where journals do not realize that research is being done through data that's being brokered like that. Also, because some of it is not particularly expensive, frankly. Uh, much of it is designed to be like tranched up and sold <laughs> multiple times. So I hope journals are ready when it comes to trying to stay on the wall with the, 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 the sort of ethics of being able to source the data in the first place. I'm not convinced that they are. Maybe there are some that are more a- attuned to these sorts of issues. But I think eventually you will start to see some porosity and then we're going to have to have a big ethical fight. I mean, it's really difficult even for IRB boards, right? So I struggle to get my survey through the IRB within like four months and it just has like really easy questions. Like there's nothing malicious. And then it's very easy to get secondary data because it's usually exempt. So you say, Mm -hmm. well, I got secondary data from a company, doesn't have any PII. And it oftentimes just gets waved through. And wow. I think that is gradually changing. But in the beginning, it was just like a very different system. And I think the IRB boards weren't necessarily trained for that. Right. Presumably, a lot of them still aren't. Um, no, that's all right. You, no, <laughs> neither of you. I, 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 will, I will be rude about ethics committees because I don't, I'm not really subject to them anymore. You two should definitely stare at me in a disapproving fashion. With daggers. Yeah, exactly. Eyes rolling. Yeah, yeah. 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 Both of their ethics committees, if you're watching, that you're all fantastic. It's just all of the other ones that create needless barriers to research. It's just really hard, right? I think, like someone was saying it earlier, you can't be an expert on everything. And there's also like, it's just people, right? So mm. how are they supposed? That's like the job that I do for a living. I'm supposed, and it's like moving at such a speed that I have a hard time keeping track. So I don't, I don't blame them. It's just like impossible. 
to do that. If you're also responsible for all of the medical stuff, for all of the, the other stuff that's going on. So I think it's a tough call. Same for regulation. Yeah. Mm, true. Well, especially now when we just suddenly decided that uh, it's weird. The, everything that's happened with large language models in the last couple of months, it's very strange. I feel like they've been around for ages and then all of a sudden we are forced to pay attention and regulate them all of a sudden. Happened so quick. It did. I but they if also we'll got better so quickly. I mean, yeah. it's like, I think the language models that were around two years ago were nothing like what we have right now. So I see well, why yeah, people are waking when, up when, when three slowly. dropped, I guess that was kind of a sea change yeah. in, the, in the quality, right. certainly. Um, do you have any plans to use those? Are you the single remaining researcher in big data who doesn't have some fanciful idea of throwing in <laughs> Using GPT? <laughs> well, which I just published a preprint, I'm afraid, <laughs> on, oh. on GPT. And I think it's like the same with COVID papers, right? Mm. So COVID hit and everybody's like, that's an amazing idea. My research is so related to COVID and then like six months later everybody's COVID papers came out so we try to be very quick um no but I do think it's a game changer so a lot of my work is um looking at personalized persuasion so to what extent does personalizing messages interventions actually increase the effectiveness so that could be marketing is the most obvious one right if you take a marketing message and you try and figure out who's on the other side the same way that the salesperson would try and figure out well Who's the person and how do mm. I best sell my car to them? Um, that's something that, first of all, we could scale now because we can predict people's psychological traits based on their digital footprints. But there was still the element of creating content that's personalized and that was human made, right? So I would team up with, let's say, a beauty retailer is one of the studies that we ran at some point and have their creative team design extroverted and introverted ads. And they were amazing because we are all pretty good at understanding psychology, but it was limited because right, the creative team had to be involved. Now I can tell, and that's the paper that we just put out, I can tell ChatGPT, write me an iPhone ad that's tailored to extroverts. There's an amazing job. Yeah. Or I can also tell nice. them in like, I mean, like extroversion is like, well, it's all of the big five. So I think that is still pretty intuitive. There's a lot written about this. Um, but it also works with moral foundations, for example. So in the political context, there's this concept of moral reframing. If you understand someone's political or moral values, then you can craft a political argument that matches those values. So what we looked at is, um, we just told GPT, write a short political speech advocating for climate action and do it in a way that appeals to someone who scores high on the moral foundation of fairness and then do it for someone who scores high on loyalty. And again, it just did like an amazing job and you do see the effects carrying through. So if you match that to people's political ideology, people are more willing to support um, politicians who use these speeches and they think it's more effective. So yeah. Did some GPT. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, uh, it, I mean, COVID was obviously worse when it came to sort of the, you know, the also, everyone was an expert. Thing, yeah. you know? I'm a material scientist and I'm looking at a different <laughs> uh, carbon nanofibers. Maybe we could put them into a vaccine. That was a lot of bullshit. It was all very tiresome, but that does actually make a ton of sense. Um, <laughs> Again, for better or worse, right? Because like the, the one thing that, I mean, like personalized persuasion, I think is amazing if you want to wanted to use it to help people accomplish their goals, because there's oftentimes things that we suck at, like saving and exercising mm. more and eating healthily. But it also means that you can now automate the entire process, right? I can automatically predict someone's psychological needs, motivations, and then automatically generate the content that speaks to these motivations. So 
if you think about us having at least certain kind of oversight of what's out there, um, I think that's one of the big differences to traditional propaganda. Because at least it was visible, right? It was also talking to people's emotions, trying to see where they're coming from. But at least we had a chance to see what everybody's seeing and scrutinize a little bit. Now, I have no idea what you're seeing. Um, and because we have the second part now, like we can just automatically surface the, the right content. I think that's just going to get amplified a lot more mm. on a bright note. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> already, there's already four assholes in a garage somewhere <laughs> on the US West Coast who are working on an implementation of that. 100%. Well, that's depressing. It's quick. Yeah. You know? It's t technologically sophisticated, but it's also depressing. Uh. Yeah. Advertising ruins everything. Never go into advertising. Oh, Deep inside. I've just, just, just made myself sad. <laughs> Ask a real question, Dan. Um, you said something interesting before that, um, that we should be turning off our location when it comes to tracking stuff. Is there any other things that the average person doesn't really think about but should in terms of privacy in their smartphones? Well, I'm now going to give you a long answer to this. Because um, I think, so I think there's like certain things that people, like everybody thinks about social media when mm. we think of privacy violations is like Facebook and then it's Google. But there's so many small things is like your GPS records and one of some of the things you don't have control over, right? The fact that there's CCTV cameras everywhere. You can't leave your face at home. Um, so there's only certain control that you have. And I think people oftentimes make this comment when I give talks, I'm like, huh, I'm happy that I don't use social media. I'm like, well, it's great for you, but you use a credit card and you use a smartphone. So if you don't want to live in the woods somewhere and grow your vegetables, then there's just no way of escaping. And I think this notion of what should you do as a consumer, I mean, I, I see why people want to take back control, but I think it distracts a little bit from this notion that it shouldn't, it shouldn't be you who has to be responsible for protecting your data, right? If you think about this, this notion of if, if you have to choose between getting a service, right? Like Google Maps doesn't work if you don't have location data. But if the, if the trade-off is service and convenience by giving your data and privacy and self-determination also because it influences the choices that you make, people are always going to pick like service and convenience. Mm. It's a very hard call for people to make. First of all, because most of the time we don't even understand Right, it's like nobody's keeping up with all of the stuff that you can infer from your GPS records. And even if you did, you don't have 24-7 to manage your privacy. So I think this, um, and this goes back a little bit to the European Data Protection Regulation, I think this notion of transparency and control is a really important one. And it's like, in a way, the building block. But I also don't think that we can essentially expect people to manage their privacy all by themselves. I've been recently thinking about this in the context of this metaphor of sailing your own boat right being the captain of your own boat taking control is fun if you're in the mediterranean sea it's an amazing beautiful day and there's only nice places that you can go to great but that's not the environment that we're in we're like in this raging thunderstorm but everybody's trying to screw us over make money from our personal data and in that case in that in that scenario having control and being the captain of your boat is not so much a right it's like really a burden and responsibility that is really difficult to to manage so i think this if we want to give people control and we expect people to manage then we just need to equip them with the tools that they need to to do it efficiently and successfully in their own interest i told you it was going to be a long run no that was no, great <laughs> <laughs> These are things that most of us don't really consider. Yeah. It is, um, I suppose, in that 
in that example, the metaphor we need is better weather. <laughs> I so I have two actually. So I'm like I'm full of metaphors now because I'm I'm writing this book and it just gets me to think about all of these stories. Ooh, what's your book so about? the two solutions that I have. So that's essentially chapter whatever eight is like. Well, we're not really equipped as lone captains. The next chapter is what we want to do is tame the sea. Yay! Uh. Yes. <laughs> and that I think talks about um, regulation in terms of like how do you shift data ownership so that people have have more control, but also about technologies that I think people are not really talking about enough. Um, so there's this notion of or this technology called federated learning, which essentially means that you can get all of the certain, like let's say Netflix. So oftentimes what happens is if you want to get the service and the convenience, you have to submit all of your data to a central server, they process, they build the model, they send you the recommendations. Now, technically you don't, because you now have supercomputers, right? Your smartphone is a supercomputer that's much more powerful than the computers that we used to launch rockets into space just a few decades ago. So what Netflix could do is essentially send the model that they have to your phone locally. So your data never has to leave it's safe harbor if you want. Um, you update locally on the phone and you send insights about the model back so that everybody shares from essentially models that, that function better. Apple does that. So Apple does a lot of federated learning when it comes to Siri. So you don't have, they don't necessarily collect all of your speech data. They keep it on the phone, send you the model. So I think that that is a way of creating an environment where you don't have to face this tension between service and convenience because you essentially keep your data, but you still get all of the benefits. And then the next chapter which I would actually, if I had to bet, I would put my money on the last one. Um, and that is how do, you, how do you equip yourself with a crew that can help you sail the boat? And what I mean by that, or the way that I describe it, is essentially this idea of data co-ops and it's, or data trusts, which is relatively new. But it's the idea that because it's so difficult to navigate personal data, right? Because like, again, knowledge, time, you don't have the expertise. It's getting people together who have similar interests. So you can imagine that if you're expecting a baby as a mother, would be amazing to kind of understand what should you eat, what should like how should you exercise, what can you do to make sure that you're healthy and that the baby's healthy. For that, pooling data from expectant moms, amazing, right? But it's also pretty personal because if you want to share your genetic data, you also share the data of, of your family and the kid. Um, but the idea is that because you don't know as an individual how to do them, you can get all of these people together. And now because you're, you are um, a collective or a co-op, you can put people in place in management to actually know what they're doing. And they have the same way that banks have fiduciary responsibilities towards mm -hmm. their customers, that that management and that data co-op could now have fiduciary responsibilities for the, the members um, that are part of the co-op, right? And suddenly it's no longer just you alone. You benefit from everybody having their data pooled, which also makes it a lot more valuable, right? If you want to sell your one data point, nobody's going to be interested. Data becomes valuable when you share it. It's just that you want to have people with the same interests that could be monetizing, that could be getting insights. And the benefit that you get is you can now get people to help you navigate the, the landscape that is hard. Oh, wow. Marvelous idea. Okay. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. So, you know, you team up with 10,000 of your best friends, the data in its own right becomes valuable. Because I was thinking yeah. right at the start when you said that, this is non-commercial. This is crazy because that's obviously super valuable. But the point is you have the control. Mm. And some of it can be monetary, right? So data co-ops could be monetary. It's like you're trying to, uh, right? If there's a data co-op with 20 million people, Facebook suddenly has to listen. 
Yeah. Um, mm. And that is one part, but the other one is just insights, right? Maybe I'm not going to sell my data because I get 10 extra bugs, but I would probably be happy to give it to some kind of research institution who's researching some kind of disease. Mm. That'd be great if they can guarantee again using some of the technologies that it's not being abused. Right. So, I mean, the, uh, I suppose there's a kind of a PBC model there as well. So, a uh, public benefit corporation. <laughs> yes. So, if you, if you take uh, 10,000 10, 10, pregnant women are taking all their data into a cooperative, it's, being, it, it's, it's capable of being monetized. But what are you actually going to do with the money? It's not a lot of use to. I signed up for yeah. a class action lawsuit the other day against mm-hmm. Facebook because I thought it would be funny. Uh, the money turned up. I got a dollar and 68 cents. Yeah, capitalism. That's a right? beer in Germany, I think. Sorry? That's, that's a beer, a beer yeah. in Germany. Yeah. yeah that's, 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 a, that's a thimble in Norway. We had, a, we, had, we, had a, we had an excellent apple vine that, that cost about that much at lunch. That was it's great. nothing. Right. So yeah. Facebook bought me a beer. But I think everyone has a lot more intrinsic attraction to the pooling of 10,000 beers and then giving that to like- on uh, women who are in health gaps between hospitals who don't have any services. So, oh wow, that's very powerful. Why have we? When you say this is a new concept, like how how new? Why have neither of us encountered it before? Because I was watching him, and he looked even more clueless than usual. Yeah, I, I mean, some of the some of the things. So even the same with like federated learning, right? Mm. So I think the reason for why it's not being publicized as much is that there's a lot of powerful players who don't have any incentive talking about this, right? Mm. So the data. The big ones, Facebook, who actually benefit from collecting your data, they're trying everything to not make that publicly known. Mm. I think for like a lot of companies who actually offer services based on data, it's an amazing um, opportunity because you don't have to safeguard the data anymore, right? Even data co-ops, they don't have to hold the data physically in their own server. They can just access the insights that they want um, from people's local local service. I think some of that is is just that. I think in the US, it's also this notion of, Co-ops still has like this connotation of communism, which I'm like, <laughs> seriously, guys. I mean, just like it's in your own benefit. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think none of these people are from yeah. rural areas where yeah. co-ops mean a very different thing. Yeah. So I think there's there's that a little bit, um, but it's I think it's coming. It's slow. And w- what's the big message for your book? The big message for the book. Yeah. Um, well, it's like, uh, let me see if I can distill this yeah. in a sentence yeah. or two. Um, okay, hang on. Are you, are you sufficiently <laughs> finished through the yeah. book that Dan isn't making you? Uh- Almost. Well, I have until the end of the year to, to finish it. All but right. it's like, it's essentially a broad take on, well, what is the world that we live in now in which algorithms can really peek into our psychology just by observing our behavior? What does it mean for better or worse? Like if someone can now predict my personality same to the village, right? In some ways, that's amazing. In some ways, that's pretty terrifying. And then how do we manage it? And the, the message is, is really kind of this notion of we can't do it alone. So let's tame the sea and, um, and get ourselves a crew and maybe come back to these more like smaller community-based solutions. Um, so it starts, the book starts with like this experience of growing up in the village. And I'm trying to just kind of bring it back and say, well, if we think of these data cops as small communities of people who have a shared interest, then that could be one one solution. We'll wrap up this uh, very special live episode. Thanks to Sandra Thank for, for joining us. That was great. Uh, thanks to Andre and the rest of the organizers for inviting us. And thanks to Julian, who, who was helping us Woo-hoo. do this live. So, uh, thank <laughs> you making all. Making us sound gorgeous. Yes. So, yeah. thank you all. And we hope to see you online or in person very, very soon.
and you, all of you online as well. Thank you very much. See you later. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.